Well, good morning, everyone. Am I on? Am I working? We're good? All right, awesome. Um, Let's pray before we go into the text this morning. Dear Lord, I'm thankful for the opportunity to gather as the body of Christ, God. I'm thankful that we can come, we can worship you, we can sing songs, we can sit under the word. And I pray, Lord, for every person that walked in this morning that the distractions of the world could be left at the door. The challenges that happened this week, the busyness of work or parenting or children activities, whatever's going on, that that can be laid aside and we can gaze upon Jesus. I pray, Lord, as we look at the text this morning, that we can see how you call us to live before outsiders. I pray, Lord, that we may see the beauty of Christ. And I pray that through this morning, the church may be built up. And I pray that people may come to know you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm excited to be here. My name's Dakota, and I look around the room, and there are so many people in here that are near and dear to me and my wife and our family. Um, I'm typically someone that really struggles with emotional attachment and kind of apathetic at times, but when I come on Sunday mornings with my wife, I'm often full and feel encouraged and love being around the people here. So I'm excited to be here this morning with you, and today we're going to be looking at Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. So if you have a Bible, I would love for you to open it up, take a look at the scripture, pull up your phone, whatever it is, put the Word of God in front of you as we head into this text. But before we actually start in chapter 3, I'd kind of like to take a step back to the 10,000-foot bird's-eye view of what's been happening in the book of Titus, because I truly believe it's going to be key for us as we start to look at chapter 3 and point out some stuff that's really important. So if you think back about a month ago or six weeks ago, when Alex started us off in this series, he kind of gave a highlight of, hey, this is what was happening in the book of Titus, here's the audience, etc., etc., And this is some stuff that Alex pointed out. The author of this book is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to Titus, who's an overseer, a shepherd of the churches that are in the island of Crete. And Alex said, what's going on in the island of Crete in this time? And they were kind of known for their immorality. And we start to see some descriptions of the people in chapter 1. And the descriptions we see are the people are rebellious, they are liars, they are deceivers, they are gluttons. So we start to build up this picture of what's happening on the island of Crete, and then Paul dives in in chapter 1 and says, all right, Titus, this is what you were supposed to do in the church to protect the church from the influence of these people. You were supposed to establish elders in the church, and they are to protect the flock, and he lays out the qualifications for those elders. And then he goes on in chapter 1, and he says, we are to warn against false teaching, and he has very vivid language where he says, we must rebuke them sharply, and they must be silent so that they are sound in doctrine. There's a high importance within the church to protect from outside influences that are pulling people away from Jesus. We move into chapter 2, and Paul starts this pattern of teaching, an A-B-A-B style of teaching, where he first starts the chapter, where he encourages godly living, and then he finishes that chapter by reminding the people of their salvation, their redemption in Christ. Specifically in chapter 2, Paul starts out in the first 10 verses and says, all right, this is how you are to have godly living before these people because you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And as you go about living before the people in Crete, you should live as you are a new creation. That way others will see Christ, come to know him, and God will be glorified. And he starts in the house. 
And he says, older men, younger men, older women, younger women, this is how you are to live before the outside world so God is glorified and others may come to know him. Then he expands a little bit besides the outside of the house, and he says, slaves, when you are in your vocation, your workplace, etc., this is how you are to behave and live for God with respect to your masters. And after giving those, those calls and those instructions, there's beautiful truths that are laid out in 11 through 15, and specifically in 14, he says, he, being Jesus, gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. So Paul's charge is, as you go out and do this, remember your redemption in Christ. That's your motivation, and that's your heart. Then in chapter 3, which is what we're going into today, we see the same exact structure. Paul starts out and says, all right, we've talked about the home. We've talked about work. Now let's generally talk about how do we live before outsiders, before the unbelieving world. And he hits those in chapters one and, or in verses 1 and 2. And then we come to this beautiful section of Scripture that we'll cover today. It is verses 4 through 7, where he's highlighting and reminding them and encouraging them of their identity in Christ. And when we all leave today, my hope for us is that when we look at Titus 3, 1 through 8, we'll see this, that we as Christians are to live distinctly before unbelievers, and we are to be fueled by Christ in doing so. So live distinctly before unbelievers and be fueled by Christ while we do that. This morning, we're going to take a look at verses 1 and 2, where we see how we are called to live distinct. Verse 3 is a sober reminder for us as it kind of tunes our heart posture while we live distinctly. And then we'll finish in 4 through 7 and see these beautiful truths, these truths that we are to claim as Christians that will fuel us on as we live before other people. So if you have your Bible, open it up. We'll be, and look with me at verses 1 and 2 as we look at how Paul calls us to live distinct before the outside world. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. Now, as those words process in your mind, I want you to reflect about what we already said about the, the people that are on the island of Crete. In chapter 1, they're described as rebellious, full of empty talk, deception, liars, beasts, gluttons. Now, look at the words that Paul just gave for instruction for the church, the believers that are in Crete. They are to be submissive, not rebellious. They are to be obedient, they are not to be deceivers. They are to be ready for every good work, not gluttons who consume and who are lazy. They are to be kind and gentle. They are not supposed to be beasts. They are to avoid slander and fighting rather than consume lies. It's the complete opposite of the society in which they live. And what Paul is telling the church in Crete could be summarized as such. Christ has saved you, and you are a new creation in him. You are to live different in the world because you are different. You've been made different. You've been saved by grace, so live like you've been saved by grace. Live according to the gospel because you have received the gospel. And in doing this, you will be a light to the world and a witness for Christ through your actions and proclamation of salvation through Christ alone. And I just want to be ultra, ultra, ultra clear here. Paul is not giving these commands so that people may earn points before God. 
Never, ever do we add anything to our spiritual resume and present it before the Lord. Galatians 2.16, in one verse, it says three times, we are not justified by our works. Instead, our motive, as we think about living distinct, is because of the salvation that we have in Christ, because we are a new creation, so that Christ may be glorified and others may come to know him. And this isn't special just to this text. We see it in other passages of Scripture. So in Matthew 5, Jesus is talking about a light on a hill, city light, where our name comes from. He says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Verse 8 of this passage in Titus 3. This saying is trustworthy. He's talking about salvation in Christ. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. So at this point, hopefully we all know what Paul is saying because I've repeated it like four times in a row, all right? (laughs) Believers in Crete, you are to live distinct because of your salvation in Christ so that God is glorified, others may know him. Now the question to think about is, All right, Paul's writing to people who live in Crete. How or why or does this apply to our lives today? And I think if we all just pause for a second and we start to reflect on those words that we saw for the people of Crete, we might notice some similarities. Think about the word glutton. That's how the people in Crete are described. Now think about our society that we live in today. Do we see overconsumption? Gluttony is typically about food, so overconsumption of food probably but also overconsumption of hobbies, of entertainment, the pleasures of our own life. What about being rebellious, as the Cretans were described? The word submission is quite cringy in our society today. There's not much submission to any authority in our lives, whether it be bosses or government or whatever. And I would actually describe most of our submission as an attitude of bitterness and slander and rebellion. All right, one last check. The Cretans are described as deceptive. Do we see deception in our society today? Unfortunately, I don't think we need to look any further than social media, right? Social media, I do believe, has good things that come out of it, and God uses it for his glory. But the whole idea, for the most part, is deception. We see edited pictures. We see filters. We see cute captions. We see the perfect moments in people's lives. We don't see someone after a long day of work and their kids are screaming uncontrollably. That happened to me, like, this week, two times. We don't see when we have a sick loved one. We don't see all these difficult moments, but instead we see deception. So as we start to think about who Paul is talking to, I think we can make the argument that the very commands that Paul gives to the church in Crete would apply to us today because we live in a society with similar moral status. So yes, the instruction to live distinct before unbelievers also applies to us today. The believer in the room... What does it look like for you to get up at 10.30 or whatever time we end today, walk out of this building, and live before outsiders so that they can see your good works and give glory to God who is in heaven? And we can draw some applications from the text here. So look with me in verse 1, the first part of it. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities. Now, immediately when I read this text, I start to run through the checklist in my mind. All right, submit to rulers and authorities. Okay, I should probably follow the laws of the land, right? Okay, so don't murder someone. All right, pretty good at that. 
Don't steal someone's car, drive it around, wreck it. All right, I can do that. Don't sexually assault someone. Basically, don't do all the big laws that seem pretty obvious, right? Well, I want us to take it a little deeper from just the arbitrary big laws in our society. And on Friday, I had a conversation with my coworker as we were, as we were thinking about kind of doing a little bit of sermon prep for today. And we were like, man, is speeding fall into this? Does speeding your car fall into this? And um, so I work in Omaha, so I drive to Omaha every day. And just to confess, I'm quite regularly a culprit of speeding, okay? <laughs> and a couple weeks ago, I was going right over the bridge on the plat. The semis were kind of annoying me, so I like floated up to 90, weaved in and out of traffic, only for a cop to be sitting right there. Now, thankfully, to my own benefit, the lady next to me was speeding. He pulled out. It was like 50-50. Who's he going to get? <laughs> he got her, so I made it out. Okay. <laughs> But the point of that is, man, when I'm weaving in and out of traffic and everyone around me is furiously angry, and when I get pulled over, hopefully I don't, but at some point if I get pulled over and they look on my dashboard or whatever this is called up here and they see the cross that I have pinned up there, am I really being a good representative for Christ? Am I submitting to the authorities even as something as silly as speeding? So whether it be jaywalking or speeding or integrity on your taxes, which I think tomorrow's tax day, the heart behind this is not to be legalistic in how we go about our day-to-day -day life, but are we actually glorifying God in every detail of what we're doing? So let's take it even a level deeper and think about the heart when we think about submission. If you've lived in this country for any amount of time, you'll know that over the last 18 months there's been a very contentious, wild climate when, we, when it comes to government authorities, politics, that whole conversation. And to address the elephant in the room, if you liked the last president, you probably don't like this one. And if you like this one, you probably didn't like that one. How would it look for us, though, as Christians, to consider the heart level when we interact with people, when we talk about government authorities, whether it be mayor, governor, councilmen and women, the president, whatever it is, how would it look to the outside world as if when we engaged in these conversations, we came in with one, a heart of humility and a commitment not to slander the person that we're talking about. And I confess, even last week I was talking to my dad and I was really frustrated about some stuff and I was slandering some government officials. But what we see in this text is Paul is calling us to live different and live distinct among people. So how can we as Christians be distinct? And I think two ways we can do that is enter into these conversations at a heart level with humility and a commitment not to slander the authority that God has ordained and put over us. Christians, let us be distinct in how we submit to the authorities around us. Another example, look at the start of verse 2. The instruction is to slander no one. Slander, to speak poorly of someone. Okay, how do we avoid that? Avoid gossip. Avoid the comment section on Facebook. It's a trap, I promise you. Don't go there. <laughs> avoid bad-mouthing one neighbor to another neighbor. Avoid bad-mouthing your coworker about or with another coworker. Ephesians 4 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may, that it may give grace to those who hear. Jesus says in Matthew 15, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and that is what defiles a person. Our words reveal the heart posture we have towards people. So fight against the flesh each day as we think about 
our slander in the words that we choose. A couple years ago, I found myself in a pretty dark season of speaking poorly behind other people's back. I would go to work, come home, complain to my wife about a coworker. I would go meet with somebody, come home, complain about the worst parts about them. I would go talk with one of my neighbors and come home and be frustrated with it. Thankfully, in the midst of this, um, a brother in Christ came to me and he scheduled a dinner with me. And I was like, huh, this is kind of unique. All right, at my house to boot. So he comes over to my house and he sits me down and we're having dinner and I'm like, so man, what's going on? Hey Dakota, I know that you are a new creation in Christ, but I'm seeing this pattern in your life that you are continually speaking ill of others behind their backs. Let me tell you, pretty humbling in my own house. <laughs> and there was a moment of shame too of, wow, I probably didn't even realize what was happening at the time. Thankfully, because Christ has paid for the full penalty of my sins, I could run to him in repentance and know that I'm clean before him. But at the same time, it was an eye-opener for me. And I tell you this story for two reasons. The first reason is this. I think it's a great example of biblical, loving, gentle rebuke that turned me away from sin to Jesus. The second one is for all of us, whether it be submitting to authorities or slander or obeying or being ready for every good work or being kind, we need to keep watch on our lives. It's really easy for sin to just creep in and we carry our pet sin with us everywhere we walk. And then all of a sudden that turns from a chihuahua to a German shepherd to a St. Bernard. And this big old sin is just sitting on our back all the time. So as we go about thinking about how we live before outsiders, my charge to us is to be distinct so that Christ may be glorified in what we do. The beauty of being a Christian is that we have a perfect example who has gone before us. And I would regret not turning and looking to Jesus about how he did this so well. Think about the life of Christ. He submitted to government officials as he was put to death. Jesus was ready for every good work. He was ready to pray. He was ready to heal. He was ready to show love, to show compassion, to be present when people needed him there. Christ slandered no one. If anyone deserved to speak poorly of another individual, it was Jesus. But, like Isaiah 53 says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Let us look to Christ as we consider what it looks like to live distinctly before unbelievers. So in verses 1 and 2, we've seen that believers are called to live distinct because of their salvation, because they're newly created in Christ. But it does not end there. Let's keep going to verse 3 and see what our heart posture is supposed to be as we live distinctly before others. In verse 3, we'll see a sober reminder. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. Paul takes a transition at this point and says, Hey, verses 1 and 2, this is how you were supposed to live before outsiders, before unbelievers. But while you're doing that, don't think that you are better than these people. Do not malign them. Do not speak poorly of them. Do not treat them poorly because of their sin. He's building on the command of how to live, and he's saying, do not think you are better than them because you were once like them. 
And Scripture continually warns us against pride and believing too much in our own self and our own capabilities. Proverbs 16 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. James 4.6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 1 Timothy 3.6, an elder qualification. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit, a.k.a. pride, and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Paul is telling the people in the church at Crete to not be arrogant as they live distinct before unbelievers, because apart from God's gracious work in their lives through Christ, they would be in the same boat. And just to even emphasize that more, look at the descriptions of chapter 3 of the believer previous to salvation, and then compare it to the the descriptions of the Cretans in chapter 1. In chapter 3, Paul says, you were once disobedient. Chapter 1, the current unbeliever in Crete, you are rebellious. Chapter 3, you were deceived, believer, before Jesus. Chapter 1, current unbeliever, full of deception. Chapter 3, believer, you were once enslaved to the passions of the world. Chapter 1, these people are gluttons. They are enslaved to overconsumption. Paul is making it so clear in this verse that prior to salvation, his audience was the same as the Cretans, the people that are around them. And we can reflect on our own life before Christ, and we can see those same shortfalls, right? Think about the word foolish, making poor decisions, whether it be drugs, alcohol, pornography, crudeness, etc. Disobedience, your parents, your teachers, your boss, the law. Deceived, believing a job, money, achievements, approval, whatever it is, would fully satisfy your life. Enslaved to passions, sex, work, hobbies, living in malice, hating those around you, envying other people, slandering those that you interact with. And I look at my own life, and I look at my own story that God has written over the last eight to nine years, and I see these things. I see foolishness. I see foolishness in my crudeness and the jokes that I made. Foolishness in sexual impurity. Foolishness in the things that I pursued. I see deception. Deception that I believed driving this car would earn my status. Or being the youngest president at this company would earn my status. Or the achievements that I had would define me as a person. I think about the passions I had, the hobbies that I had, the things that I desired. All of them were focused on me. I rarely thought about anybody else. I think about malice, that I was envious of those who were achieving great things rather than celebrating with them and um, being able to be an encouragement for those who are doing well and the things that they did. And to be honest with you, I still struggle with some of these things. I still struggle with the shiny cars. I like achievements, so I struggle to battle that. I struggle with disliking other people for little to no reason at all. And ultimately, Christ has set me free from the bondage of that sin, and I rejoice in that each and every day. But sometimes in our walk with Christ, we want to go back to that old master. We want to go back to the very sin that once held us captive. But in Christ, we are no longer owned by our old master, and we experience the fullness of life only in him. And I think about in my own life today, It's so easy for me to walk through the grocery store and start to judge people who dress differently than me, who live a lifestyle different than me, that make decisions that are different than I have made. And it's so easy for me to walk through as a Christian, living above reproach, and having this terrible heart posture, 
towards those who are around me. Arrogance and pride are a barrier in my own life that prevents me from humbly witnessing and loving people who do not know him. And as we think about, wow, Dakota, verse 3, pretty somber. All right, um, this is good. I want us to once again reflect on the life of Christ. The king of kings was not born in a palace or a castle, but instead he was born in a manger. When he came into town, he did not come in with an army of 500 people, but he came in on a lowly donkey. Christ was beaten, he was mocked, and he was scorned, despite being the author of life. Christ, if anybody, had the right to exercise pride before others, but he did not. He walked in humility before lost souls, and he had compassion among them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Let us be humbled by this verse, Christian. Let us strive to throw away the pride that sits there in our lives and praying that God gives us a heart of humility like our Savior and that in doing so, we would go out living distinctly and loving those who are around us. Now that we've seen there's no room for pride or poor treatment in the unbeliever's life because we were once like them, so let's turn and look at the last several verses and see the freedom that we have in Christ and hold on to these truths as we walk day to day in our lives. So read with me verses 4 through 7 as we look and we see the truths that we can claim as Christians. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that had been done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Paul follows up a sobering reminder in verse 3 with one of the most beautiful passages that we see in Scripture. He uses the back section of this section of verses, so verses 1 through 8, he backs it up by saying, hey, church of Crete, this is your fuel as you go and live before the outside world. When the Christians in Crete are feeling discouraged, when they're feeling beat down, when they feel like they're struggling in the society around them, this is to be the bedrock for their motivation and their hope each and every day. Christ alone is their fuel, and he is their life source. And there's a guy in our church, his name's Eric, and I've heard Eric say over the last like year, probably a dozen to 20 times, he often asks this question to people. He says, hey, believer, what truths do you claim in your salvation? And the heart that Eric has in that question is he wants the person to think about, hey, Christian, what are you tucking away in your memory that you can come back to time and time again as you walk through life with Jesus? So an example of this in my own life, three words that I try to remember all the time. It is finished. The last thing Christ said on the cross before he died is the penalty of sin has been paid for. I try to remind myself of this regularly. So when I'm feeling down, when I'm feeling overwhelmed with sin, or just the overall sin in the world is putting a pressure on me, I can look to those verses, it, that, or that verse where it says, it is finished, and I can remember that Christ has had victory over it, that he paid the penalty in fullness the believer, I'm going to point out five truths that we see in this passage, and I want you to write these down if you take notes. And my encouragement and my challenge to you is make Titus 3, 4 through 7 a memory passage for you. 
Let it be a passage that you can cling to as you walk through life because I found five truths. There's probably 20 truths in here. There's so much to unpack actually in this passage and it's so beautiful. So when you leave today, say, hey, in the next week, I'm going to memorize a verse a day and I'm going to have that tucked away in my heart for all time. So follow with me here. Starting in verse 4. But when the kindness of God, our God, of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appears, so that's saying when Christ came, when Christ appeared, truth number one, he saved us. He saved us. So he saved us, not by works, but according to his mercy. And in Ephesians 2, we see this text. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive, made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In God's mercy, even when we were dead in trespasses, we've been made alive together with Christ, and we are raised with him and seated with him in heaven. Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God saved us when we were weak, not when we were strong. Romans 5, 8 says, But, but God shows his love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He saved us in the midst of sin, not when we had our life put back together. Colossians 1 says, God has qualified us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Believer, you are qualified. You are delivered. Find security in the fact that God has saved you and no one can pluck you from his hand. Truth number one, he saved us. Truth number two, we are regenerated and renewed. Verse five, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Spirit. Regeneration, big word, simplify it. Rebirth is a synonym. Some of you, if you know the Bible, can think about Nicodemus, and he came to Jesus, and he said, what must I do to be saved? And Christ said, you must be born again, not a physical rebirth at age 40, but instead a spiritual rebirth where the active agent is the Holy Spirit. The best text uh, that I see in the Bible for this, 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled him to himself. Believer, you are regenerated. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. You were once by nature a a child of wrath, but now you've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Hold on to that truth, that you are regenerated and renewed. Truth number three, we have the indwelling spirit. Look in verse 6. He poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Romans 5.5 5 says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit indwells inside of us and it's given to us at the moment of conversion. And here are some roles of the Holy Spirit that you can claim and know are true in your life. The Spirit confirms that we are children of God. He gives us assurance. Romans 8.16 the Spirit helps us understand Scripture and apply it to our lives. 1 Corinthians 2.12. The Spirit intercedes for us in prayer. When we do not even know what to pray, the Spirit intercedes for us. Romans 8.26 and 27. The Spirit seals us until redemption. He holds on to us. Ephesians 1.13 and 14. The Holy Spirit is in you now, and He will be in there forevermore, believer. Truth number four. We are justified. Look with me at the, at the beginning of verse 7. So that having been justified by his grace. Justified means that you are declared righteous before God. 
You are no longer seen as a sinner before God, but instead you are seen as clean and holy before him when you enter his presence. John Calvin said justification is the hinge on which everything in the Christian life swings. 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of the most important verses in the Bible in my own life. For our sake he made him to be sin who did not know sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Very simply put, we're over here, we have sin. Christ is over here, he has righteousness and perfection. At the cross, this transaction happened. When we put our faith in him, Christ takes on our sin, we get his righteousness forever. That's it. Justified forever before the Lord. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God forever because we are justified and we are sealed in Jesus. Truth number five, we are heirs to the throne. Finishing verse seven, that we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Passages we've already covered this morning. Ephesians 2, we have been seated with Christ forever in heaven. Ephesians 1, we are sealed by the Spirit and held there until our time of redemption has come. John 10, beautiful passage, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. We are heirs to the King who sits on the throne, and we are waiting for the day where we will worship him eternally in heaven. These are the five truths. One, he has saved us. Two, believer, you are regenerated and renewed. Three, you have the indwelling spirit each and every day of your life. Four, you are justified once for all when Christ paid the price for sin. And five, you are heirs. One day you will worship God forever in heaven. As we go out and we live distinctly before unbelievers in Lincoln, Nebraska, there will be days that are struggles. There will be days where we feel discouraged, where we feel like we are fatigued and we are beat down. And in these moments, I beg that we return to Titus 3, 4 through 7, and we remember the truths of our identity in Christ. To end this morning, I want to take a step back and give a humble, sober warning. The truths that have just been laid out only apply to the person who has repented and put their faith in Jesus Christ. The first word of, words of Christ's ministry in the book of Mark were repent and believe in the gospel. To add some definition to those words, belief or faith means that you trust that salvation is only found in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Only the blood that was spilled at Calvary for Christ's perfect life is able to present you clean before the throne. Jesus has resurrected, defeating death, and he sits on the throne, and he will return one day. And if what you present to him is all of your good works, he'll say, no, that is nothing more than dirty rags before me. Only my perfect life and blood presents you clean. Repentance means that you turn from the sin in which you once lived, you turn from the world, you turn from its desires, and you cling only to Jesus Christ and say, He is my only hope. And if you're sitting in the room today and you have not repented of sin and put your faith in Christ, I beg and I ask that you do so. There's no decision more important. There is nothing of higher urgency than to know where you stand before God. Time is not guaranteed. Another breath is not guaranteed. The blood spilled by Christ is the greatest expression of love in the history of existence, and in him is the only source of hope and joy. And my ask is that you please believe that today.
Let's pray. Dear Lord, I'm humbled seeing what you have done for me, that you have saved me, that you have regenerated me, that you have given me your spirit, that you have justified me, and that I am an heir forever on the throne with you because of what Christ has done. I pray, Lord, for our church, that we may go out with a renewed fire, a passion, a desire to live distinctly before others so that they may look and see our good works, glorify our Father who is in heaven, and that we may proclaim the salvation found in Jesus Christ so that more may go to heaven with, Lord, with us and celebrate Christ and worship him for the rest of our days. I give thanks to you, Jesus, and I pray that your spirit is moving in our hearts. In the name we pray. Amen.